Hello, stylish folk, and welcome once again to Handcut Radio. I'm Alex Svetkovic, and this week we have another horological luminary to present to you. Justin Hast is a watch journalist, photographer, and creative who works with a number of luxury brands on their content and communications. He's also an old comrade of mine. As you'll hear shortly, we both came up through the magazine world at the same time and through remarkably similar routes, and we've been firm friends ever since. His sunny disposition, razor-sharp wit, and truly relentless optimism has never failed to brighten my day. So, this conversation is a fun one. We talk about our first jobs working at the Rake and Revolution magazines, hear Justin's perspective on how the watch industry is evolving in response to digital, and I get a rundown of new and noteworthy watch releases, among other choice morsels of wisdom. I could have chatted to Justin all day, but alas, we only had time for an hour. Nevertheless, I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Oh, Justin Hast, welcome to Handcut Radio. I've been so looking forward to this. This is going to be the highlight of my week this week, having a good old chin wag. Um, how are you, dear boy? You all right? Alex, what a pleasure it is. Um, no, thank you very much for the invite. I mean, I, uh, when, when I saw the message pop up, I thought it was, it was either something naughty from you or it was something <laughs> exciting, and it's, it's, something, it's both. It's well, both. well I, you know, I, I should hope that all my messages are either naughty or exciting. That's great. <laughs> um, well, no, thrilled to have you on, on a, on a season dedicated to, to sort of young, young, exciting perspectives in London. Um, why don't we start with a little bit of context? Um, because obviously we have not historically been a watch podcast. You are one of the early horological luminaries to come on. Um, we met. We met, at, God bless it, at the Rake Stroke Revolution, did we not? Um, I can remember it well. Um, it, it's, it's almost uh, like, in my mind, listening to James Blunt, you're beautiful, because when I was sitting behind my desk, I saw you across the room coming in. <laughs> And I wondered, I wondered what I was looking at. Um, it looked like, you know, I was curious because while I've got an interest in menswear, you know, I, I know nothing about menswear. But what I saw that morning when you came in on that beautiful Monday morning at 7.45, you came in and you, you looked like a character from a, 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 a movie or yesteryear. <laughs> and, and I just couldn't quite work it out. The flared trousers and, you know, the flannels and the layers. And I, I thought, my God, this is... You know, this is really interesting. This guy's got a story to tell, and and he's passionate. But I was, yeah, and, and you came in in Boston as well. Oh, I presume just... I came in, sat down, swore, <laughs> shout, shouted did. at someone on my team, yeah, yeah, uh, and then uh, yeah, and then sort of cleared off for the morning and had a coffee upstairs. Classic. I, yeah. And you're rolling. I remember you had a rolling chair on that on those that sort of parquet flooring down there, and, and you just come in and sling your your jacket on the the hanger, and then yeah, you would have a, an expletive or two and something broke on the, on the website during over the weekend and, and, and someone's commented something on the, the Insta feed that's like, <laughs> yeah. having a dig at us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. no, it's had on heart true. And, and you know, it was a, it was a blessing really. And, and you've, you know, yeah, you've taught me so much. And, oh, shut up. No, no, no I didn't. No, no. We were equals in that office. So for context, I was at the time that Justin joined Revolution, which obviously is the sister magazine of The Rake and a big watch, well, the biggest, I think, watch publication globally. Um, I had just taken on the mantle of editing the rake.com, God help me. <laughs> and uh, Justin was, was, was absolutely bossing it in the watch department. And the two magazines, the editorial teams basically sat opposite each other. Mm -hmm. And much like we are now, we're sat here, obviously, we've got big, we've got our socially distanced desk between us. 
and our microphones on. And whenever anything kicked off in the office, I would just sort of look at Justin and that sunny disposition would remind me that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, was, it was a brilliant time. I mean, you know, it was, it was a fraternity. Uh, there, was, there was some characters there that, you know, I still consider great friends, actually. Mm. Um, and it's a great lesson for life because you almost need to go through those times where it's a little bit challenging and, and, and you know, you grow together as a result. And, yeah, I still, I, I obviously hear from you a great deal and, I, and I'm hugely grateful for that. Um, Charlie, yeah. Charlie Thomas is, is a dear friend still. And, yeah. Um, yeah, great group of people. Interesting I'm, time. I miss, <laughs> I miss the sort of team point one. It was, yeah. a great, it was a great few years. It was a great, great sort of, um, we were all in it together, weren't we? It's the joy of media, actually, is, you know, you're sort of, you all sink or swim together. <laughs> um, now, the love of watches. Mm. Talk to me about where this comes from. Why, mm. why have you become a huge watch head, if mm. such a thing exists? Do you know what, Alex? I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not the first time I've, I've thought about that. And, and actually, it probably goes back to early childhood, because I remember going on holiday to Turkey with our, you know, my family. And, and, and it was, for some reason, it was the one place we, we always went. And there was always a market. And I'd always, the first thing I'd always do is go and buy a BB gun at the market. And then after that, I'd then go and buy a watch. And it would normally be like a Nike or an Adidas watch mm -hmm. that was like a, a knockoff thing. But I would cherish that watch. I would absolutely cherish it. I'd bring it back to the, the apartments. And I can distinctly remember jumping in the pool in that heartbreak feeling of it, of it breaking. Or, um, you know, being gifted at the same time from the age of maybe nine to sort of 12, 13, being gifted a baby G by a, a Japanese friend of mine at school and just cherishing the, the thing, you know, an item, a beautiful item in the hand and on you. I, I, I was drawn to it. I had no choice. It wasn't mm. something I decided to, to be interested in. And then, I, and I think that was the early stages. And then following that, it was the gift that I got on my 21st birthday. You know, like most guys and girls who are into watches, there's, 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 there's the one that started it. And for me, it was this Omega constellation from the 1960s, a day date. Ooh. And a beautiful design by Gerard Genta. So it's an unusual case shape. But up your alley in sizing proportion, so it's 36 millimeters. Beautiful. Very elegant. Um, and yeah, God, I got given it by my mum, my actually. And she said, as flippantly, she said, why don't you take this? Um, you might be interested in it. And, you know, I never met my grandparents, but this belonged to my father, his father. So, so my grandfather on my dad's side that I never met, and he was in South Africa. And... You know, they didn't have a great deal of money, but for, for, for me, that was my only connection to him. I'd heard stories about them, obviously, but never having never met them, this was my only item that I could connect to him. And Omega back then was really the pinnacle. They were above mm -hmm. Rolex in many people's view. And, and God, he must have saved for ages to, to wear it. And when I look at the, the dings and, and the scratches, it reminds me of what he must have been up to in, in Joburg. And I took it and I took it to Westfields to the Omega boutique there and I walked in and I showed the manager there and he was buzzing about it and his excitement about it got me excited and at the time it had a, a gold bracelet on it and he said, why don't we take that off? You can go and sell it. We'll service the watch. We won't touch it and, and change the character. We'll service it, get it working and we'll put it on a, on a, on a, a sort of cross-hatched Hermes looking leather mm. calf strap and that's what it's on to this day. And that was the start of it. That was the bug. And I think that then took me online and into the rabbit hole of, of, of the watch world. Did, it, did you spend a good deal of time sort of in forum land? Was, how did you kind of educate yourself early on? Yeah, I think forums, um, magazines, like early magazines, whenever there was a chance to pick one up at an airport, wherever I would. Um, and 
speaking to people. You know, I was that guy. I was that guy going into the boutique that they thought they needed to get out. You know, I, I think there was a few people. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few boutiques on Wall Street that were like, I was on the security list, the watch list. There was a mugshot in the face, just like, careful, watch out for this idiot. Because I just wanted to be around it. I think the best way to learn is being in amongst it, speaking to people in the industry. And yeah, I was, you know, that was it. I'd walk into to, to, to Panerai, I'd walk into IWC, Panerai actually didn't have a boutique that early on, but I'd walk into to Harrods, I'd walk into Selfridges, where you could see many watches in one place and just chat with them. And that was, that was exciting for me. Mm. Yeah. There's so many parallels there. It's really, this is where watches and clothes start to click for me. You know, it's that idea of an object that kind of can take you somewhere else entirely, that can connect you to other people that have been a big part of your life or that you have a huge kind of I don't know, that you're drawn to or the way an object ages, the way, I mean, I used to, again, my kind of parallel for that was just going and nagging anyone on Savile Row who would be prepared to indulge a 17-year-old who didn't, who didn't have a clue for half an hour <laughs> and just trying to just pick up a little bit of knowledge. So interesting. It's interesting, actually, because we both probably had a similar trajectory as well, because we both had a, a little blog of our own before we joined the Rake Revolution. Yeah. And I think... You know, certainly I was sort of blagging it because I really didn't know what to say. I didn't really know how to shoot anything for the website. Um, but I guess it was just that period of learning, trying to absorb as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and my writing's still not improved since then. But I, 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 I've learned a few things since, you know. Now, that has, there's a, a question that is not on my sheet of questions that's popped <laughs> into my head. So let's break this down. Something that I've been struggling with recently is I, is that there are, for me, there are almost two types of blogs. There are, and, and I haven't figured out my own stance on blogging. Everyone who's listened to the podcast now knows that I have strong views about, quote, influencing. Mm -hmm. But blogging, I'm still struggling with. We both accidentally somehow managed to become, quote, unquote, professionals mm -hmm. through launching blogs. And, and as you quite rightly say, not having an, a clue about content for a number of years mm -hmm. before we both got a break and started on the bottom rung. Um, but... And, and I've always maintained that I kind of, to, I, I try and remember that because it's very easily to go, oh, I'm a professional and I, I have no time for blogging. But actually, that's where I started. Mm. However, mm. I do find it extremely irritating. All those people who are, who've been doing it for years and years and years and years and who have blogger in their Instagram bio. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I still, I, I don't know if I, I just can't figure out, am I being mm. a hypocrite or not? <laughs> I think we've talked about this in the past, and, and it's definitely a conversation that crops up a lot when you're on a trip or, uh, or, or a launch of a new product, because you've got the old guard, you've got the guys that have been doing it for 15, 20 years that talk about trade shows that weren't even around when you weren't alive, yeah. and then you've got the young guard coming through who are guys who the brands call upon, who they think are going to add value to the brand because of their numbers, but may not have an interest or a foggiest clue about how a watch is put together or how it functions or anything so but but you know what bottom line is it's much how I, I, I view life generally I think you can't look down on anyone and I think it's the same for, for watches and menswear when I look at it and through my experience because you've got some guys that have of course you know I think of guys like James Dowling in the watch world who's mm. an expert in, in, in Rolex mm. um, Nick Fawkes of course is an expert in Patek uh, Ben Clymer who I, I've had the pleasure of working with at Hadinki is an expert in vintage Longines and Patek. But then these young guys coming through have, you know, they have got a voice. They have got something to say. Mm. I just, I think it's about saying we're all in this together to learn mm. because that's true. We're all going on the journey to learn, you know, um, and I've got, and I'm interested in the subject. I just want to see people who are interested and passionate about the subject. 
give me someone any day who's passionate about what they're interested in or do, and I'll, I'd be pleased to sit next to them at the wedding. I just don't want to sit next to the guy from Deloitte who's got no, no stories to tell yeah, and enough. no interest. <laughs> so I think it's a really it's a really interesting time, and, and, and I can see where you're coming from because we, we, we speak to the, the brand marketing directors and we speak to the guys who have who've written books for years on big subjects. So yeah. it's a really interesting intersection at the moment of digital and experience and where that all lies. If you write for a big magazine, a big paper, does that qualify you? Yeah, I think it's a subject that we could spend many hours discussing. It it is super interesting. I think you're right. I heartily agree and applaud you for saying that we're all in this to learn and that's kind of good enough Mm -hmm. uh, and should be good enough. I Mm. completely agree with that. I think what I struggle with is when you get certain members of the old, old guard that think they have nothing left to learn, Mm -hmm. which I don't buy. And if I ever get like that, someone needs to put me out to pasture. (laughs) And uh, I I struggle with that. And then I also struggle with, actually with other members of our generation who think they've cracked it. Because I sure as hell haven't. Uh, I've got a million miles to go. And I still often, as you've already alluded to, feel like I'm winging it. Mm -hmm. Even Mm -hmm. with this bloody podcast four seasons (laughs) in. Thank you all so much for listening again, because God knows... How this has happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay, that's that, that's really interesting. Let's leave that there. But I'm going to go away and give that a little bit of a little bit more headspace and thought, and just think about what does how do all the different kind of editorial structures work in this industry. What I would say actually is is it's not a zero sum game for me. It's not a zero sum game where one old guy who thinks he's got nothing more to learn takes away f- something from the industry from the, the young guy with a hundred thousand followers on Insta who just takes great shots. I'm saying as long as they all have their space, as long as we all have find our, our niche, our own way of shooting, our own way of talking, our own place to, to have a voice, then that's great. And I've, I, I, I could assimilate it to um, the Apple Watch because people were so scared about the Apple Watch in watchmaking. Mm. But that has been one of the best things that's ever happened to the industry in watches because it's put more watches on more people's wrists and then we get to talk about watches with more people. Yeah. And then that comes back round in the watch game because then they'll start saying not only do I want an Apple Watch to train in but I want a great mechanical watch one day so it's not a zero sum game and I've always and I would say one of the big things that I hate speaking to PRs and I love speaking to PRs for so many reasons uh, in in London because there's so many great ones in the watch industry but what I hate is when people start getting demanding about the way they travel or the way they they want things done for them because there are some old guard who basically think it's it's like a God-given thing that they should fly first class and they should have chauffeured cars. It's like, no, 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 guys, we're all here. Let's get stuck in. Yeah. You're all eating at this table tonight. We're all in a great restaurant in Italy or in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. And we're Let's immensely enjoy lucky. This. Yeah, we're super lucky. Yeah. Let's stop pointing fingers. I'm having a Jean-Claude Beaver moment. I want to hit the table, but I know it's going to make a noise <laughs> on the, the microphone. But that's what we need. You know, that's what we need people to level off, level off a bit and say, hey, you know what? I respect you for that. I love the way you shoot. I love the book you've written. Let's get behind it let's support each other and that's the positive world that I, I want to operate in mm, nice uh, that's why that's why I wanted to talk to you is you're so damn positive <laughs> I love it <laughs> um, okay right let's um, come back onto your kind of career path so um, like me blogging ended up in house talk to me a little bit about that period of your career and your experiences on Revolution magazine mm-hmm. and then we'll bring it up to where you're at now because again we, we sort of weirdly parallel each other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well honestly I think 
I was probably what 24, 25, and I was working. So I, I worked in a bunch of different jobs. I had a little business on my own actually for a friend with a friend of mine for like two or three years after uni, which was a little MBA experience, which was completely off the, the charts. Like we had a little shop at Westfields in the middle of the walkway, and we sold uh, case bespoke phone cases and laptop cases and other things. Nice, um, which was really interesting. Got sued a few times, um, <laughs> and and then we moved on. Then I had to get a, a proper job, and I and I started working basically in a call center because I just needed a job so I said yes to it and and I, I worked for a company called House who are an interior design company um, where I would just be calling for advertising on the website just calling you know makers and, and other, others service providers and asking for them to advertise and one thing led to another and got a call I remember I'll always remember Friday afternoon in the office 600 of us or something in the office making calls. I hadn't sold a sausage in eight months. And I was about to get the, the, the sack. <laughs> and in fact, I did get the sack the day that I accepted the job at Revolution. But basically, the, the PR lady at Vacheron, Laura, who was, who's now at AP, she had put in a kind word for me with Tracy Llewellyn, who was the editor at, at Revolution, very well-respected journalist. Fabulous. Probably, a, you know, a true, through heart and heart, you know, lovely woman, first and foremost, great journalist. Yeah. And... Laura from from Vacheron had said this this young buck is fired up about what she is. Give him a shot. So I got the call from from uh, Tracy saying I've got a job for you, but I've got, you've got to speak to Waco first. If you can speak to him and you get through that call, then you, you've, you've got, got a job. job. Uh, and so I said, Yeah, I'll take the job. And then when I spoke to my boss, he said, Just things aren't working out for you here at the centre. Have you got another option? I was like, Yeah, good. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, so then I took the job at Revolution. Well, then I had the call with Way the next week, and basically before the call, he sent me a photo of his watches in a box. A Richard Mille, two or three APs, some Patek World Times, um, and he said to me, "Tell me the calibers inside of all these watches." Jesus, and that was the test. Boom, and I think I got all of them except for one. And oh, did you have to do that on the spot? No, thank God he sent a text. So I did a bit of research. Yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> and, and we had a call, and, and he asked me. He did ask me a few questions on the call. He asked me, who, you know, who were the first to use silicon in in, 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 an, in an escapement? And actually, of course, it was Ulysses Nadan in the Freak watch which I got wrong at the time, but I'll never forget that. But thankfully, he'd said, yeah, come on board. And, and I took the job, and it was like, yeah, massive. I never thought in a million years I'd actually be able to work in the industry I was so excited about working in. Yeah. And that was the start. And it gave me such a platform to get out and speak to the brands and get out and learn and go on a few of the trips and get hands-on with watches. There's nothing like just actually, like you guys, with fabrics and, and cuts and, yeah, yeah. and leathers, getting hands-on with a watch. You, that's how you learn. It's not about looking at photos necessarily on Chrono 24 of a watch. It's about saying, God, this is what they felt like in the 60s. This is what they felt like in the 90s. This mm. is what they feel like now. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, again, I can immediately see the parallels now you've said that, but I would never have thought about how watches actually have changed over the decades in terms of their how tactile they are. Yeah, I mean, I, God, I was with just hands on yesterday with an old, um, you know, an early GMT Rolex, um, beautiful faded dial, yeah. patina, creamy tritium markers on the dial, a totally different beast to watches that we see now from Rolex, totally different beast, and and the way it feels with that bracelet, very light, uh, very tactile, very much like you're you're wearing something almost tinny, but there's charm in that. Mm. Whereas now you put on a, a submariner, it's bulletproof, it feels bulletproof. It's, this thing is manufactured to the nth degree. It's like Nothing you'll ever wear. But yeah, of course, they feel very different. They feel very different. And the charm that comes with something old is, yeah, it's something I'm living into. And coming with age, 
you know, coming it's coming with me during as I get older. It's something I'm growing into, but that that joy of, of the patina, that joy of, yeah. of an older thing. Yeah, I think you have to, you have to go through obsessing over everything mm. being pristine for mm. a for a good long while, don't mm. you? Till you can start to look at the joy of things aging. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. Okay, amazing. So. Uh, a period of time at Revo. How long mm. were you at Revo? I think I was there for just over a year. Cool. Um, cool. I thought it was longer. I think probably maybe a year and a half. Yeah. Um, and then f- the freelance life came a calling. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. Actually, you know, it did. It did. And I, I jumped shit before you did. And yeah, I remember yeah. we spoke afterwards. And well, you, you, the conversation I had with you in Thomas's yeah. in on a grim December day. Mm-hmm. Another parallel here with our silent partner in the room, James. <laughs> But the two of you encouraged me to take the plunge and go into freelancing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it was the two conversations I had with you two that, that were most the most convincing cases for giving it a punt. Because you were at the Jackal at the time. Mm. And, 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 and I remember telling you, look, I think if you can get at least one partner on board part-time that could support you just to get you going, you'll have that bandwidth to then get out there and have conversations. And, mm. you know, your passion is like... You're honest, honestly, intoxicating levels of passion, sure. and no, 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 no. It's good. It's good. I, 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 and and I think uh, you know that that's what you needed. You needed that bandwidth just to get out there and have those conversations. And I knew you'd then fly. Well, bless you. But let's let's come back to you. Um, you <laughs> obviously led the way. When how did it happen for you? Because you presumably didn't sit down with anyone and go help. Do I do? I this? said to Tracy it. before I left. I said, could you help me to just get going? Could you support me? And she was very kind, and she said yes. Tiny, tiny retainer that for that period of time just to get me going. Ah, yeah, with Revo. With Revo. So Brilliant. I was still contributing to Revolution, and then, you know, what's happened is we've seen this shift in the industry where brands themselves have become media outlets in their own right. Yeah. And we we see this in in the menswear world, and we see this in the watch world. And my relationship with IWC is a really funny one and a beautiful one. It's my my closest and longest serving relationship. Um, where they opened their boutique, say, five, six years ago on Newborn Street, and I literally was a bad smell knocking on the door. When, whenever I could, <laughs> I was knocking on the door. I've always loved the Portuguese as a watch. Yeah. Uh, an old family friend had one, and I just loved the simplicity of it, the elegance of it. And I would knock on the door, and I said, guys, I just want to take photos. This was kind of before Instagram really kicked off. I just want to take photos. Because if I could take photos, I could get hands-on with the watches, I could learn more about them, and yeah. I could then try and add value to, to the brand and say, guys, you can have the photos. I'll give you the photos. You can do what you want with it. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't really yeah, want them or need point, them at that point. Yeah. And I think I was so lucky. You can only look, you know, like Steve Jobs said in his commencement speech at Stanford, you can only connect the dots looking back. And looking back now, I think I was really lucky to be just ahead of that moment where the brands needed help with content for the websites and for social. And that gave me springboard. So IWC were kind enough to say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do something for you um, and we'll help, you know, come on board give us x number of shots and we'll we'll do that and mm. my my shooting style thankfully lent itself to a sort of an understated i just wanted when i picked up the camera for the first time i wanted to tell the story of watches in the way i felt they deserved to be told mm. which was elegance understated craftsmanship at its core i wanted to see a photo so christian hagen photo, photographer journalist in denmark just picked up this new watch from him last week in Copenhagen, which I've been angling for for years. And he was my inspiration to really take the camera up because the way he shot watches for me was the way they should have been shot. Appreciative of their history, respectful of their design. There wasn't champagne. There wasn't supercars. There wasn't tits out. No. It was much more about 
the people and the watches and the stories. That got me fired up. That is an issue that the watch industry has had historically, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's fantastically chauvinistic marketing. <laughs> Not yeah. now, yeah. but in, in the past. It probably infuriated me as much as it infuriates you to see now some of these guys coming in um, you know, with huge followings that have not a s- sausage about the history of Savile Row and anything that they stand for. Yeah. And, and, and for me, seeing a couple of accounts without naming anyone because they had their space, I don't agree with it, it, it but they were doing a lot of champagne, they were doing a lot of bikinis, yeah. uh, they were doing a lot of big watches with a lot of diamonds this and a lot of gold. ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> and, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was working for a certain market, but it just wasn't honouring what I thought was a wonderful tradition that needed to be perpetuated because if we don't support it, it will die out. Yeah. And we need to support it. Um, you know, so yeah. Well, let's. There are a few little tidbits in there that really intrigue me. You've talked about brands becoming media outlets in their own right, and you've also used the phrase uh, visually telling the story of a watch. Mm-hmm. Now, I, as a complete layman, which I accept when looking into the watch industry, I still don't sense much storytelling. Maybe I'm just not looking in the right places. Take journalism out of the equation. Of mm. course, that's where the storytelling happens. But the brands don't seem to be telling many stories mm. themselves. Mm. It is getting better, mm. I guess. What, what are your thoughts on how the watch industry needs to present itself or is presenting itself? I mean, wh- where are the strengths and weaknesses? Well, I think you've got to look at the industry structures. And, and typically, these brands are conservative. Typically, they're Swiss or German or Japanese. And the, the, the nature of... Their, their, their disposition is to be conservative and therefore I would argue they've ridden off the back of their craftsmanship and their history but probably not the storytelling I think what's now happened is we've seen great websites great publications come in and assist in that process the best example are my partners who I contribute to this day to Hedinki uh, in New York yeah. they really came along and tried to, to you know really connect stories to watches and to be fair to Way, you know early on with Revolution when he wrote that first edition uh, he was trying to connect lifestyle to watches to to put watches on the cool table instead of just the geeky forums and the the guys that collect stamps and you know um, so what's happened and you can see it with Adinky now is they've taken on and become authorised retailers for a bunch of brands because the brands have loved the way they've exhibited the product when they've tried selling it as Mm. limited edition pieces Mm. And they've said, right, you guys should help us tell stories. And I think they've lent on, you know, guys like idiots like me who have a passion out there, you know, trying to say, you've got a view on this. Come in and help us do a campaign to shoot the watches and then go and do the video as well. That's, I think, what I've seen. I mean, that. Uh, yes, you're right. I, I'm just thinking, casting my, my mind back to the sort of little, little, dim little nuggets I used to pick up in the office. And actually, even over a five-year period, the industry perception of Hadinki, to their absolute credit, has completely transformed. I mean, Hadinki now probably is the mover and shaker, I'd have thought. But even five years ago, I think there was quite a lot of, of, of horological professionals kind of looking at this big digital beast, not really understanding what it was or what it was trying to do. Mm. And even in the space of a five-year period, now there are so... I mean, it has so much power. I would, when I was in New York last October... I popped into the Dinky office for the first time, and it is, I swear to God, the most fabulous office I've ever been in. I mean, it's divine. The guys are nailing it. Absolute <laughs> legends. Yeah. Um, From a design perspective, they were ahead of the game. They they viewed, they knew that typeface and font and layout and images were, and video, they were so early in video. Yeah. They knew that was the future. 
you know, you've only got to look at Talking Watches as a series on YouTube now to recognise, my God, that is just like, that's like, that's gold dust for, for a watch lover. And that sells watches. For me, I've always believed when you see a watch out there on someone interesting, um, that's, or you hear them talk about it, that's what sells watches for me. Mm. Um, and, you know, you talk about the lack of storytelling. I can completely see that from a brand perspective. You've only got to look at a story recently from the guys uh, on a Vietnam watch. And I don't know if you've seen this video, but it's well worth guys checking it out because it's, for me, hands down, the best bit of storytelling ever. Okay. And we, it's a story we, uh... about a beautiful uh, non-date uh, Tudor submariner, uh, a U.S. Um, uh, uh, soldier in, a, in Vietnam, gets shot in action, and the bullet goes into the, the watch. It actually cuts through the lug and basically saves the guy's wrist, you know, certainly saves him from bleeding out. The, office, uh, the, the medic comes over and sees this watch hanging from its NATO strap, fabric NATO strap, takes the watch off and then treats him for his injuries, other injuries. And Hidinki were able to track down both of these gentlemen and connect the two of them in the story where the medic could then hand this watch back to the, the chap who lost it in Vietnam. And I, I, I challenge you to watch it without having a, t a tear in the eye yeah. when you see these two guys in the room talking about it. And that's what watch is all about for me. It's never about the bling in the show or how much did that cost or which club were you seen spraying champagne without watching on Insta. It's always been about the people and the reason for it being on them and the stories they had when they wore the damn watch. So this was episode one where you had these two chaps meeting and only a few weeks ago did we see episode two, which was the process where Tudor, and this is really interesting because we're now seeing a, mold, brand. a big brand stepping in, yeah. Rolex nonetheless, who never engage with anyone. No. <laughs> like that tech, <laughs> who never engage with anyone, who've done their own thing for, you know, for decades and don't want to take any advice from anyone rightfully so because they're killing it and next minute the CEO of Tudor steps in and says guys we took this watch and we have restored it not taking away the dial patina not taking away anything of the character but we've just made it work again we've put a new um, crystal on it or perspex as it would have been back then and this thing's now functioning let's meet again and let me hand it back to you and I mean this is just absolute gold dust mm. the guy's wearing the watch he was wearing in Vietnam that saved him his life potentially and, and 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 the brand stepping in and if that doesn't sell black bays I don't know what does yeah extraordinary um we will 100% link to that in the comments because that is <laughs> or the show notes but that's that's yeah that's awesome you are I, I think we should give this man a standing ovation quite frankly because the you you are you're expressing a lot of things about watches that I have in my head about style and it is always about the people it's not actually about the clothes or about the objects themselves it's about the human stories that underpin these things and I find it really interesting that you have an organization like Hadinki nailing that because for me there still isn't a well-respected well-edited beautifully designed vehicle for men's style that does that we still are in this very i now think very long running very tired phase of can you wear brown shoes with a blue suit and how which of the five main different tie knots must you obsess over and i we really i really feel like men's style has to catch up there i had a catch up with a really good friend a couple of days ago and he said to me he is completely immersed in menswear, building a brand, um, has been an art director for a number of years, photographer, super passionate, doing amazing work as far as I'm concerned. And he, was, he just said, I've had to take a step back from this because I'm so tired of us not 
getting to the really interesting thing, which is it doesn't matter how many stitches are in that shirt, really. You know it's beautifully made and it's a lovely shirt. Put it on and then go and talk to the man who made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm, mm. I'm really struggling with that. I think the equivalent in the watch world, and I, I have this the whole time, it's this imposter syndrome where you feel like you can't talk about watches because of the depth of knowledge you might need on the technical level. And that's what actually a lot of the journalists, that lovely gents that I've been able to work with um, over the years, I think Tim Barber being one of them, Robin Swithenbank being another, who might have been thrown an opportunity to write about a watch really in a newsroom where they might not have had an interest, but it would have scared a lot of people off because of that, that perceived lack of knowledge in themselves. But you're absolutely right. We've been stuck on the detail. I think, of course, in some with some brands, um, say Grubel Forsey or FP Jean, these top high-end independent makers, it is important to understand the technicalities. If you're buying something for three, 400,000 Gs, you want to know about it. But for the most, for the most part, we need to be talking about how beautiful something is, how, how nice it is, how interesting it is, and the person who's created it, and yeah. why it's important, and who these people are that wear them. And, and the, va- the values of it, not the value, Absolutely, yeah. the values. Absolutely right. Um, yeah, Absolutely right. super interesting. Well, okay, on that note, what are, what are some of the, I, I, love to get a, I love to get a view from a critic, what are some of the kind of niggles that you have in watchmaking at the moment? Well, mm. we, we must discuss, let's discuss positives as well, but I, mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to know What's working for you and what isn't? I think, first off, there's probably a level of, and I'm not sure this is just because we've come out of lockdown or not, but there seems to be a level of um, aggravation, frustration, and fury, as I see it, in the industry from the collector community like I've never seen before. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had a few things that have come out, products that have been launched, that have had this amazing backlash. I don't know if you get this in the men's world. I've seen some of it. I don't know if you get this in the men's world, but there's a number of like meme accounts on Instagram now which just tear into some of the big figures. I got trolled last week. <laughs> it's the ultimate credit. And, yeah. and, you should, and congratulations, <laughs> sir. That's the ultimate credit, and you should be proud of that. I was just, just gutted it wasn't <laughs> funny. I just would have liked it to have been funny. Well, you have to send that. Please link it up. Cool, no, I absolutely yeah, right, Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would be honoured if someone was able to do that. So please, if, if um, Hadonki uh, are listening, uh, please, or, 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 or Shame on Wrist, please, please. Please get, pull me up on that. On In fact, you know, he did share one of my images once. He shared he shared a Bamford Mr. Porter collaboration, which I'd cover, which I shot for, and he ripped into that. But he didn't credit me, which I was pissed off about. Oh. Um, but uh, that was the closest I've got to being memed. But there seems to be a level of anger which is just not quite right now. I think to myself, like Stephen, who I've worked with at Inkia for a long time now, he's always right. You know, he's like, guys, this is watches. We should enjoy this. This yeah. is a passion for us. We. Let's enjoy it. If we enjoy it, if we've got a smile on our face, let's not take this too seriously. It's a bloody beautiful thing you've got on your wrist there. Tell me about it. Let's let's yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. Let's do it like that. Let's not dive into it where the guy, the strong guy stumbled. You know, what's the, the quote, you know, the man in the glass poem where, you know, let's not point the finger where the strong man stumbled. Yeah. You know, let's just credit the guy who's in the arena, marred by sweat and blood and tears. Let's just celebrate things that are good, but of course call things out when they're not right, if they're not right, but we don't need venom. We certainly don't need personal attacks. I completely, completely, completely agree again. Very refreshing thing to hear. Salute you for saying that. Um, It is happening more in menswear. And again, I don't know where it's coming from. I, I think that one of the great weaknesses of social media is it becomes an outlet for social anxiety. Mm-hmm. And we've all, we are all still navigating through a really horrible, uncertain time. Um, 
And, you know, people are worried about their incomes, their jobs, their families. We've just come out of lockdown, as you've said, or we did it, you know, with sort of, and people still can't travel and all these horrible things are building up. And I can only presume that they are, that, that they are, Instagram is becoming an outlet for a lot of, of fr internal frustration for a lot of guys. Mm -hmm. But it is a really sad thing to see and I personally think very misguided and it is happening more in menswear there's been quite a lot of unnecessary negativity recently and I just don't get where that culture comes from because watches clothes design anything doesn't matter what it is it can be ceramics if you want it to be whatever it's not an objective science it is subjective no two people view a single object in the same way. We all appreciate different things. We all have different bodies um, that suit different things. Mm -hmm. um, I really struggle with kind of this idea of critiquing tailoring as, a, as an objective science because mm -hmm. it's like, well, there's, there's no point when my bum is three times the size of your bum <laughs> in us both going to the same tailor mm -hmm. because one of them will probably cut for a small bum and one will be able to cut for my ass. And that's, and it, uh, it stuff like that's a flippant example. Mm -hmm. But stuff like that it, is really wrong. It's a really interesting one because it, it correlates well to watches. We talk about sizing, case sizes, and that gets a lot of people fired up. The wrist, your wrist is a different size to mine and my, my shoulders are different to yours. And therefore, I think from a style perspective, because I, I like you wonder about this stuff the whole time when you see an elegant gent walking down the street, you, you wonder, you know, where did he get that jacket from? Where, where's, it, where's he getting his tailoring done? I see that watch on the train and I'm thinking, God, that looks brilliant on him. I can think of a dear friend of mine now who's a very tall chap, very elegant Spanish chap. He's six foot two, six foot three. He can wear very, very small case watches, 34, 33, 34 millimeters, traditionally men's sizes in the 60s, yeah. now considered female sizes, maybe, although it's very unisex, I would say now. Mm. He can pull it off. I cannot pull it off. And I want to, but but, but no, I don't want to. I'm saying it's great for him. Yeah. And I love it and I celebrate it for him. Yeah. That's not gonna impact on me. Yeah. So I think we see a lot of this anger and we see, um, you know, I, I think, the, so, the subject I'm, I'm referring to specifically is the travel clock that Hedinky launched. Uh, so, uh, yeah, which I followed with some interest. I thought it was very strange, the reaction to it. Very strange indeed. People are frustrated with media outlets right now. And I understand this from a community perspective, that the watch community is visceral and they're, they're fired up and they're, they're, they're coming together, which is great. But they also are angry that the media outlets themselves are... Um, they are having to advertise. They're having to support brands because of commercial, you know, the commerciality of running a business. And therefore, I appreciate that some of the stories might not be exactly what they want to hear, but that's also important to recognize these guys are trying to run a business. And we have to take a pinch of salt with that. And you're able to go and read whatever you want. If you don't like this, you can go and read that. But that's one of the, the frustrations. In this instance, with the travel clock, I'm a huge fan of the like 1930s, 40s. I think they're the most elegant things you can own. I've got a couple of Samandar Jujer um, travel Ooh, clocks. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Bought them on eBay. So the argument is you can get them on eBay and other places for less than 150 quid. Then Hedinki did launch this one for four and a half thousand dollars and people were critiquing, critiquing the leather. They were critiquing the fact it had Hedinki on the dial and they felt ripped off. But Hedinki had, I don't know, 86 or 96 calibers that they were putting, they found these these watch calibers, these movements available uh, in, a, in a drawer in Switzerland. And they said, we'll make 96 or whatever of them. And bottom line is, 
they sold 96. Mm. So for me, that makes good commercial sense. That means that there was supply and demand and it sold and that works. Yeah. If it's just sitting there and it then has to be destroyed and we lose all that, and I can understand, guys, that's that's not on. We need to be lean, we need to be supporting, no, we're not wasting. Yeah, but, it, support, but it worked. But it worked. So for me, I can, I just, I'm struggling to get my head around, we shouldn't be attacking people personally. I know a lot no. of guys, some of the bigger names in the industry get direct attacks, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. I also, I again, totally agree, but I, I do think you've hit the nail on the head there because it's, I have no issue with robust discussion and robust debate yes. because we're all passionate. Yes. But there, there has to be a level of respect um, you know, there's just no need to articulate some things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I always thought the best thing to do on Instagram is just, just switch it off. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I've never felt the need to launch a, an opinion at someone because of that, because they popped their collar and I don't think the collar should be popped or, you know, I think the trousers are half an inch too short. It's just mm-hmm. like, come on, mm-hmm. I, at what point does your worldview mm-hmm. depend on you launching that? attack. Mm. I think the only thing to, to, to touch on it, uh, your question about what else is frustrating, I would say there are probably too many watches right now. Okay. I think there are too many launches. I think there's too many watches. I think there's too many brands. Is that because it's been pent up during lockdown or is there just an excess well, of well, stuff? I think it's good that we're seeing launches from the big players this year because originally Relic said they wouldn't launch anything. Tudor said they wouldn't launch anything. Patek, I think, said that formally, but now we've, we've seen launches from them this year. That's a great thing for everyone. I'm really pleased that we've seen that. Primarily probably because the Chinese market has actually not taken a great hit from COVID, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. A small GDP impact, but we're seeing, and I've heard from friends in the industry now, from brands saying that sales are quite good in China, which is good news. Yeah. Um, but I just think, generally speaking, we've got too many watches out there, I think, and we need to just, I think we need to just consider how many we're producing and how we're using them down the line and just think more about that. Really interesting. Maybe the market sorts that out in itself, but I'm not sure. That's just an observation I've, I've made. Really interesting. So, what a okay that 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 little segment fascinating. Some of the challenges we're all we're all working through at the moment. I think again, there's a parallel with clothing in general. There isn't there. There's just far too much stuff. Um, give us some positives. What have, what have you? You know, we've, we're coming out of an immensely challenging time. Although economically, we might be in it a while yet. What what brands are ticking your boxes, and what are you seeing that's that's a positive on the radar at the moment? Yeah, I think there's been some really quite big shifts. Um, we've seen the trade shows, the traditional trade shows change gra- drastically. So we're not going out to SIHH, which is Geneva for Richemont Group brands. We're not going to Baselworld. We're not doing Geneva Watch Days, which was set up very quickly. And then we're not doing, you know, I think Watches of Wonders in Shanghai is going ahead. But there's been this like constant stream of information coming out about what's next, what's the big next trade show and stuff. I'm not of the belief that we're going to have trade shows down the line. And I think we should credit some of the brands to, 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 to for those who've said, let's create an experience for the press and collectors and those interested in local environments. So decentralizing command to the regions in the world and saying, you guys should come up with something. Bremont were the first to do this a few years ago when they pulled out of Boswell because Boswell charges a fortune for these guys to, to advertise. They said, let's do something quintessentially British in New York and London. Yep. Let's get a great location. Let's have an experience for people to come along, immerse themselves in the brand. And it's hugely enjoyable. Hugely enjoyable. You're not forced to sit in on things. You're not forced to travel, quite frankly. You're not forced to do any of this, this yeah. stuff, no, this entertainment. You, the small talk around the sausage things you get you can get you can get your hands on the watches you can get you can speak with mates you can speak with a brand you can talk to ambassadors that's what it's all about i yeah, think so we're yeah. seeing the shift towards that which is interesting 
But as I said, I, like I, we've had a bunch of launches this year, and that's a great thing. So we've we've actually seen a lot of watches come out, and a lot of great watches that have been really exciting. Hottest hottest watch for you this year, then? <laughs> it's probably us, a joint. I mean, give us a couple. Then. Yeah, jo joint joint uh, between two. Um, so we've got the Nautilus and the Royal Oak. The one that's often forgotten is the Vacheron Overseas. They all came out in the 70s. They're all integrated steel sports watches. But the Vacheron third generation Overseas, time only, in a black enamel and a blue enamel, date window at three, controversial, but it does, 40-ish millimeters case size, really sporty on a rubber strap. It competes with the Nautilus, sorry, it competes with the Aquanaut for me, which is Patek's sort of sister to the, to the Nautilus. Um, and it probably competes with the, the offshore, the Royal, uh, the Royal Oak offshore from AP. But for me, it's an absolute winner. Absolute winner. I've had debates for many, many weeks about which is better, the blue or the black. Still haven't really worked it out, but I, th I think the black might be the one. But I'm, I'm sniffing it out myself. Plus, they've just started doing finance now, which is a big thing in some brands. That's which very we've never had before in watches, really. Uh, apart from it, some of the big retailers who've offered it, but none, fr never from the brands directly. So IWC now on Bond Street are, are the first brand uh, location, as I understand it, in the UK to start offering finance, as is Vacheron on New Bond Street as well. So suddenly it's become potentially an option for us. You know, I talk about us because we're younger enthusiasts, maybe not yeah. able to drop 16, 17, 18 gay. No, <laughs> sadly <laughs> but, not. But, but, but you can you can you can find and find a way to make it happen. Beg, borrowed, steal, but you can find a way to make it happen potentially with that. So I'd say, okay, what are my hits? Fashion overseas, third generation. That's a winner. That's a winner. Sporty, elegant, chic, steel, sports. That's what we want. I'd also say IWC have uh, come up with a smaller Portuguese. So going from the larger forty-two or forty-four millimeter, they're now down to forty millimeters. Oh yeah, that works. I think. That's a bit that of That works, that works. Bit. Yeah, classic, beautiful dress watch. Yeah. Beautiful, sporty dress watch. They've also partnered with Olibar Brown, which is interesting. So they've got a capsule collection with them. So IWC have partnered with them. And there's a, a yacht club, which they've done with them, which has got a blue dial, slightly larger, I think 42 millimeters, rubber strap, sporty, elegant. I like that. So I'm a fan of that. Nice. So check that out. I don't know about Olibar Brown. I've always, I've, I've always liked the brand, but I, I don't know a great deal about them. Great Although brand. I do know a great story about them. The founder, Adam, yes. English guy, right? Yeah, yeah. He needed money when he started the business and he had a GMT, a Rolex GMT. And he, he, he sold that watch to a friend of his and he then um, did incredibly well with the brand and his friend who he sold it to sold it back to him when he had enough money to buy it back from him. So that watch financed Oliver Brown to get them going to start with. Awesome. True story. Great. Um, Great story. I would, <laughs> I'd also say the trend is that we're seeing a lot of harking back to vintage models in new references from brands, but not always done very well. AP have done a killer job on the Remaster, which is a dress watch from like the 1940s, I think, chronograph. It's a two-tone. It's like 40 millimeter case. It might even mm. be a 41 millimeter case. Very elegant hands, incredibly thin, beautiful watch beautiful watch they've met it's limited so i think they might have even sold out now very cool watch so so, so jump to onto that out. um we've also then got a, a, an independent brand i'm i'm hugely uh, passionate about Ressence. oh yeah i, I think yep we super about them. cool super yeah, cool yeah, yeah. like no one else um you know ben warminton this is a good friend and um uh, he, he's uh you know the founder um, and they are doing like they, they've created something like no one else so the hands never cross on the dial and they're just they're organic they look like they're coming out of you almost in, in, a, in, a, in a sense they wrap around your wrist their their sub dials rotate on the dial like 
nothing else out there. Anyway, they've done a collaboration with, I think it was Sotheby's or Christie's, one of the auction houses, to have their audience design a watch. And I think it was in partnership with the COVID foundation of some sort. So we've seen a few watches come out, the, the woodwork supporting COVID, uh, which have been great, great to see. Um, and of course, we, we have to mention uh, the Piaget Altiplano, which is the dress watch from Piaget, a brand that I think are underrated, but beautiful. Um, very flat, but we saw the world's thinnest mechanical watch from them this year. Uh-huh. So it was a prototype a few years ago. I, got, I was lucky enough to see it at SIHH. It had been made, but it was so wafer thin that it could barely be worn. They said, it's not ready for production yet. Give us a bit of time. It's now in production, and I think you can now customize it as well. Well, that might be the Tourbillon version, but it is now the world's thinnest watch, and that's available from Piaget. Awesome. So that's a big thing. I shall go and do some homework. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, my man. That's awesome. I'm sure um, that all the the horological enthusiasts uh, listening to this are now going to be jumping towards their iPhones, uh, their smartphones, <laughs> smashing. I've got one more question about the watch industry, mm-hmm. and then I want to wrap up with a couple about you. Um, how do you think it's going to change in the next 12 months? I mean, do you have any thoughts or predictions on, on what's going to happen? Um, I'm optimistic, but I'm always accused of being an eternal optimist. Fucking relentless yeah, optimist. Relentless, yeah. Yeah, relentless optimist. <laughs> to my detriment, I've got a few family members, mainly female, who just can't stand the positivity. <laughs> You wake up at a pissing I mean, down we've Sunday morning. for an hour and 20 and I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I think um, I'm optimistic. I think we have... So, Watch the Switzerland figures came out yesterday and they have their, their share price has rocketed because the impact has been a lot less than expected. I think they're just down 23% maybe year on year. So I'm optimistic for, for what's to come. I think it's given a nudge to the brands that needed a nudge, particularly the retailers, the local retailers here in the UK who I know have been behind the curve of digital. I know that the brands who sell in those retailers have, have helped them to come in line with what they need to, to to be able to sell online. I'm really optimistic. I, like, I really think it's going to be okay. I think we're going to see maybe a, ref, uh, a reduction in number of brands. I think we're going to lose some, but, but I, sad as it sounds, I don't think that's a terrible thing. I think we're going to have a period of refinement. Yeah. I think a bit of consolidation. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to see more and more storytelling online. I think we're going to see more great videos, like the stuff we see from Mr. Porter, like the stuff we see from Eclected Man and Hedinki. Um, uh, and we're going to see more conversation. And we're going to see, um, we're going to maybe see fewer retailers. Mm. We're maybe going to see more branded boutiques. And, brands and, taking control. Yeah, brands taking control. I am I, so fascinated. It feels like there's a whole other podcast here about, men's luxury just reaching this critical moment in terms of how we all talk about and intellectualize the subject matter i do think we seem to be moving away from i mean we've been banging the drum for a while saying you can't rely on a discussion around craft anymore craft isn't sexy enough alone to engage that hot shot 30 something and i firmly believe that so what you know? What comes next? How do we all help brands put more pieces of the puzzle together? Sounds like Hadinki is nailing that. But where's the Hadinki in menswear? Can we build more Hadinkis as mm. a as a community that wants mm. to support each other? As you were saying at the start of our conversation, mm. um, I really passionately believe that men's media has got to get beyond these this sort of very basic style guide, technical yep. analyses, yep. review culture. As an observer, I'm fatigued with the number of emails I get from companies that I like 
who just say the same thing over and over in that newsletter that I, I, I don't even want to read about the color of a black tie, what a jacket should be like anymore. If you gave me a great video of a really interesting guy, like I have enjoyed some really beautiful stuff on Mr. Porter, for example, of style and, and menswear. I think that's what it's all about. Even if it was a website just said, I'm going to do video and I'm just going to go out and speak to guys and film it beautifully. I would be there like a shot. Yeah. I'd be there like a shot. Yeah. Um, Really interesting. But you know what is interesting? Sorry, Alan, we could do all day. In the watch spaces, we're actually seeing a lot of individuals in their own rights become really quite interesting and powerful conversation platforms um, who are collectors or, 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 or enthusiasts in a particular reference of watch from a particular brand. And I think of guys like um, a guy in Germany who loves Royal Oaks and is, is an aficionado on Royal Oak. And then I've got a guy who I'm friends with who's the big pilot from IWC. He collects big pilots. He knows everything there is to know about, but he has a website dedicated to big pilots. Um, and that's really interesting. So I think we're seeing again this like fragmentation in the niche. Keep on fragmenting down and breaks down into this very fine line. Oh, I like needle. that. And maybe that comes in menswear. I don't know. It's all about being niche for me. It's all about knowing who you're, who, who the community is and who you're making something for. Um, shout out Hanka audience legends um, <laughs> absolute legends all of you now uh, a few more questions my man I uh, you said something this is this is serendipitous actually you said something in a piece of video content that you featured in that I watched years ago and I believe it was for Glassiter. Um and I think you said something like it was the release of a new watch and they were talking to a few aficionados in the space on film and you said something like, over the past couple of years, I've been on a mission to simplify. And you're sat here in a beautiful Valstar goatskin A1 and a lovely Sunspell t-shirt. Oh, it's the Drake's collab one. Great, 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 great. And um, looking immaculate. And every time I see you, you are wearing something beautiful that's been well-made and you've gone away and you've researched it and you've found the thing that works for you and you look damn good. And it's always an object that's of quality and I love it. Just talk to me a little bit about how you approach just the kind of other passions in your life mm. like clothes um, you know talk to me about aesthetics. have you been drinking this morning huh? have I been drinking <laughs> <laughs> Christ that's too kind of you must be pissed man you must be pissed no, that's really kind that's really really kind um, oh my god I mean geez no that's really kind I've got a massive passion for simplicity a massive passion for a few good things um, I'm just thinking a couple of things come to mind right now um, so John Pawson, the, the architect, interior designer, who has a passion for mid-century furniture, his rooms inspire me greatly. And I've, I've been buying a lot of his books recently, English designer, and the room looks pretty cavernous, but it has nothing in it. But I love that. Mm. Um, it's beaten up, it's worn, but it's very simple. It's stripped back to its essence. And then I would urge people to go and watch the Talking Watches episode with Matt Jacobson, the fourth or fifth employee at Facebook. He was the marketing director at Quicksilver or O'Neill or one of the surf brands. He got a call from a guy called Mark. He turned <laughs> out to be Mr. Zuck. And he said, I've got a startup. You should come and join. And he was like, can you pay me? He's like, not really. But he jumped in and he did it. And that guy, he's featured in a couple of menswear pe features because he's, he's also very well respected for his, his taste in menswear. But he did a Talking Watches episode with Ben Clymer in his Manhattan Beach house on the, the front, the waterfront, that was designed by Ray Cap. Um, he's got like um, uh, the Peter, he's got Peterbon art on the wall of surf scenes that have been hand sketched nice. he's got the beaten up sort of Chuck Taylors on the, the side he's got a a PP, a PP Mobler um, design chair um, 
from Wagner there. And he's just got the few items that are just like, and he really nailed it for me. And he's got five watches and Ben sits with them and talks about it. Ad- admittedly, they're five of the finest vintage watches money can buy. So they've cost a fortune. But his view on it is that one comes and one goes. So you've got this system. It has to, if something comes in, something's got to go. I, I've lived and preached that for a while and you almost have your uniform. I've tried to get into this place where I've got my uniform, like my, my clothing. So I love it, a Sunspell t-shirt tucked in um, or I love a Drake's button down shirt mm. tucked, tucked into some chinos. And then I offset that with a colorful pair of socks like Stance who are like s- skateboarding slash CrossFit slash training socks with Converse. And I love that with a Drake's jacket or something. Yeah, kind. something dressier on top. Yeah, yeah that's, my, that's my uniform. So I've tried to really nail into that and I love it. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's about that reduction. And, um, and why, well, why, is, why is quality important to you then? Because clearly it doesn't, it, 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 you don't just view watches as mm. beautiful objects. You know, you have an appreciation of all sorts of different... Because I want to get money's, my money's worth. I'm as tight as a camel's ass in a sandstorm <laughs> because I don't want to spend a lot of money. But when I do spend money, I'm happy to spend a lot of money if I know it's going to be with me forever. Christian, my dear friend, Christian Hagen, the watch collector, he said this, he said it to me the other day, he said, luxury is something that you can work on, something you can go back to and you can service. That's the definition of what luxury is. And that really got to me because this watch I've got on my wrist is going to be working in 50, 100 years time if we can help making sure people are That's working exactly in the watch industry. exactly what Nick and Charles from Bremont say in their episode. Really? It'll be that, yeah, if you buy it, do it right, and you look after it, you've got 200 years worth of wear. I believe the same as said with this jacket. I believe it's going to get better with age. The more I wear it, and it's going to be get better and better. And if you buy classic, if you buy great classic things, um, they're going to be with you for a long time. So basically, it's because I'm really tight, and I'm happy to uh, buy something that's really expensive if I know it's going to be with me forever. And I think that's probably the, the best example of that is, is my, my sort of jewel in the crown of my watch world, which I never in a million years thought I'd ever be able to buy. But it was a design that just captured me from the moment I saw it. It was a design I had up on the wall. Instead of having the, the pictures of the ladies on yes. topless on bikes, I had this <laughs> photo from Glasuta from A. Langenzona, and it's the Langer one, which was the watch that saved them from... When they came back out in 1994, it was the watch that Gunter Blumlein and the team there designed. That saved them. Their brand, and they went on, and they have become this Patek oh, equivalent. Else. Yeah, but very understated in, in a way that it's a small group. Mm. It sums up my love of of, of great craftsmanship and, and less but better. Dieter Arms, less but better. It sums that up in a nutshell because it is the perfect watch. It costs a fortune. But every time you put it on, it makes you feel like a million bucks. Every time you look down on it at the train, it makes you feel incredible. Um, and you know that when you take it back to them, it's going to be treated with that love. And it's a style that's never going to go out of fashion. It's a style that's unlike anything else. I think that sums, it's probably the closest thing that in my world that comes, you know, I can sum up this love that I've got, this passion, this obsession for well-made things. Um, of course, it does get you into trouble because when I come home with a new chair, like I've got coming from Bryn Rasmussen, my auction client, <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, then yeah, yeah. my girlfriend, Nat, she's like, what, what's going? What, if that's coming in, something's got to go. So I was like, shit, what, what can I get rid of? What can I sell? <laughs> so that's the fun, but that's the fun thing, I was that you and I do this as well. We sell as well. Like when yes. we buy something, the joy is you know you're going to get a kickback at the end when you sell. Not necessarily making a lot of money on the sell, but you're going to be able to get money back yeah. to go into something new. And there's something so satisfying about your wardrobe saying, I've got five great jackets. If I want to sell that, I'll sell it, I'll still get my money back and I'll be able to put it back into something else. Yeah. That's what I love about it. Yeah. 
Sorry, I need to be. I need, I need to be a lot better about that. I'm, at the moment, I'm just hoarding again. I need to unhoard. But that process of decluttering is cathartic in a way that is like few things I, I get enjoyment out of in my life. It's like, what can I sell? I sold a few things this week on eBay. God, it gave me great joy. Oh. Great joy. Oh, what a feeling! Great joy. Oh, Sorry, I'm fired up. I'm, I'm well, I have. Listen, I have one more question for you, which I always <laughs> ask everyone. <laughs> Uh, you are a writer, you are a videographer, a photographer, a man about town. What is coming next for you? <laughs> um, oh, God, there's, there's a few projects with some brands I'm really excited about. So we've got a few product launches that I've been able to jump on board with and, and help bring to life. Cool. So we've, we've got cool. that to come. I, I'm a big believer in bucket lists. And I wrote a bucket list about two, three years ago, which has about 10 things on. So instead of having goals every year, I just have this bucket list where I want to cross those things off. One of them is to have an outdoor shower one day in my life. One is to build a little shed somewhere to, in the middle of nowhere in the highlands of Scotland. And then the other was to write a book. And I never in a million years thought I'd be able to write a book, mainly because I'm highly dyslexic and can barely string a sentence together. But one thing that's happened this year in 2020 that's a positive is I think I've just written a book. It's only a small book, but it's a city guide. And I recognized along with um, you know J James here at Think Birch, you know, who we both admire and, and connect with as, as a man uh, and a designer, has a wonderful eye. And I approached him about this idea a year ago and I said, no one has done this in the watch world yet. No one's actually created a, a, a sort of a, a monocle style, a serial magazine style guide for watches because when people travel, I went to Paris last year, I wanted to know where to go for watch, to go and check out the watch scene, right. didn't know where to go. And so we have been able to come together on this amazing project that I'm so excited about, where we're actually gonna produce a beautiful book that should last a lifetime, as long as the bloody places don't move. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. then, then, then we're all good. And I just really, am, I'm excited about being able to produce that. So I've written, we've got 29 um, locations in London that are must-see watch locations for watch lovers and those who are new to watches. And I think it's the perfect time because awesome. because the high street is is suffering and I want to be able to say guys this this can support the high street get people back out in the streets and get them touching and handling watches again so that's what I'm most excited about right now brilliant penned by Justin Haas produced by Birch <laughs> love it love it love yeah. it love it another great product um, I can't wait to see it my man I've seen some preliminary designs and sketches um, but I can't wait to read it get a signed copy uh, <laughs> um <laughs> Justin, it's uh, uh, just such a pleasure to spend a Friday afternoon chatting. Many, many pertinent opinions and, and points of view. I could do that for another hour and a half, but I feel we must stop. Um, thank you so much for coming on and being a part of season four. Thanks, Al. Real pleasure. Oh, what a charmer Mr. Hast is, eh? I hope you enjoyed that chinwag as much as we did. Before you disappear, please do take a moment to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Good reviews increase our visibility and help other people to discover the podcast. A final word this week goes to my collaborators at Birch, the London-based creative agency which produces this podcast, and to Mr Joe Boyd, our sound editor and theme music composer. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in as always, and we hope to see you back here before too long. <laughs>